Hello everyone, it's December 5th, 2023. This week is a Starship-stuffed show. We're going to look at what's new, what's not, Starship V2, the HLS variant, and all the little changes that we can spy with the information we have at the moment. Which isn't a whole lot, but it's enough to make you think. So let's do the show and lift off. Welcome to episode 437 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. So Dennis, you have news of an explosion at Geotron Satellite Launch Center? Yeah, this is pretty, this is kind of funny. Um, there's evidently this test stand at Juchuan, which is like the first of the kind of four major uh, Chinese spaceports, the one in the Gobi Desert. And uh, this this gentleman on Twitter, Harry Stranger, likes to basically use satellite footage to basically identify things that are happening on the ground and has, yeah, basically seen that there's been an explosion on this test stand. Mm -hmm. And it's a really cool uh, set of images. It happened just, you know, I guess November 28th, 2023, if somebody's listening to this in the future. What makes it funny is it's the same test, like makes it funny to me is that it's the same test stand that had an explosion <laughs> in 2021, a few years ago. It's just, hmm. I mean, the imagery is just great in general, but like... Does it look like to you guys that they got the test fire going first before the explosion? That's kind of how I read the the elliptical clearing on one side. Yeah, yeah exactly. You, you can see, like, on the one hand, like, there's, a, there's, like, the outline of the plume. So there's obviously some horizontal, you know, firing happening here, some static firing. But yeah, I, I, that plume looks so well formed. I guess that it must have been firing for nominally for a little bit to make that, and then you see perpendicular to it all the debris and just all these like white smudges everywhere, and then just like straight up like you know detritus around the stand itself. Like it's charred black. There's just pieces of debris all over the place, and it's an even higher resolution one, the one from two thousand uh, twenty twenty one. You can see that one is pretty intense as well. So that's it's like this poor stand just keeps <laughs> running into problems, I guess. Yeah, Andrew Jones wrote about it in Space News and kind of was speculating that, uh, I don't know how, but they think that this is uh, uh, Kasich, uh, China Aerospace Science and Industry Corporation, that it's their stand. And they do a bunch of like solid rocket, solid motor rockets. And uh, yeah, so this could potentially just kind of suck for them in terms of like, you know, they keep having things blow up every couple of years on the test stand, evidently. But interestingly, though, I, I had no idea how like Juchuan spaceports uh, arrayed. And this is pretty far from where the actual launches take place. Um, if you kind of like go on Google Maps and then kind of zoom out, this is to the southwest of where the launch pads themselves are. But yeah, if you go to Google Maps as of, you know, this recording, you can still see a lot of damage on the on the site as I guess they're working on cleaning things up. Starship Stuff, S-H-T-U-F-F. And specifically, I guess we're going to do a comparison between Starship and Lunar Starship, right? Since we have some, I mean, a little bit of information on Lunar Starship, right? I, th I think comparison is... <laughs> implies that there's more information out there than there actually is. <laughs> but it seems like we just have a couple of renders, right? And so you can kind of make some inferences from that. Um, you know, like it, it looks taller. So, you know, and there's some slight design changes here and there, but not a whole lot. And I think that this was all hinted at uh, a couple of times by maybe Elon Musk and some other people, but not, you know, there's been no official presentation on this or like am i wrong because i don't think that there has we're still kind of in the dark about this right so there's a couple different pieces of starship development news 
some of it mm -hmm. coming from Starship and some of it coming from leaked renders. And so they're talking about different things, but there are some connections between them. That's pretty interesting. Um, in particular, when it comes to the propellant tanks and how big kind of, mm -hmm. you know, a lunar Starship uh, will be. But coming from SpaceX themselves is uh, they kind of confirm that they want to do a major uh, overhaul uh, on their kind of iterating Starship enough to call it a whole different version. And so uh, we are probably going to only see four or five more of the prototype starships that we've already sent two up to orbit to explode. Um, and so we might get four to five more. And, you know, I'm sure out of the way it's going, I'm sure one of them will successfully complete its uh, suborbital, you know, orbit once around kind of <laughs> uh, mission. But yeah, these, these, these overhauled ones... Uh, we'll use Raptor 3 engines, which I thought they were already kind of at the limit of what was possible <laughs> with an engine, and yet these would have higher specific impulse, 20% more thrust, which kind of is what wow. jumps out at me. Yeah. And what will be really interesting, I think, when we learn more details, is that evidently they're designing it so that they won't need heat shields, which would be a great way to save a lot of weight. Because, I mean, just the number of engines being so high, you multiply that mm -hmm. by the number of heat shields, that kind of adds up. I have to confess, I mean, maybe I haven't been following SpaceX News closely enough, but I didn't know that there was even a Raptor 3 engine. I mean, I guess I could have guessed that, but this is the first I'm hearing about Raptor 3. And also 20% more thrust, like they were already pushing the limits there. Or maybe this is the actual limit that they had originally thought they could achieve. Because when it comes mm. to things like chamber pressure specifically, I mean, there was the prediction and then there was the reality. And so maybe this is closer to, you know, that prediction that they had initially made. Mm. Um, I guess we'd have to get some numbers on that. But that's pretty cool. 20% more thrust. You know, I, I didn't realize that either when it came to like that they had like a... a yeah, that Raptor 3s were, were a thing. I thought kind of Raptor 2s, they you know, they tweak and iterate, you know, versions of it. But mm -hmm. to have a, you know, something you want to call a new engine. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like you say, maybe that, maybe this was, maybe Raptor 3 is the kind of, you know, the summit. You know, when you do reach it where you've kind of pushed uh, chemistry and physics and design to the limit. And you can kind of get as much thrust and ISP uh, out of the engine as you can. And and the, another thing that'll change on this uh, uh, Starship V2 is uh, they're going to increase from six to nine engines. I'm assuming people that follow, you know, Starship news more uh, have kind of been waiting for this or have heard and were f aware that this was going to be a design change that um, they had talked about. I didn't know about this. And so I'm wondering if that is going to be three more outer engines to uh, assist with the kind of, you know, push out to space and then they'll still have the three central ones for, for landing. I'm not sure if, if anybody knows about that now, but like what what's going to be the arrangement? Because right now, right, it's, it's the three central ones and the three outer ones. And which ones are the vacuum optimized, the inner or the outer? The outer, I guess, bigger engine bells? Yeah, I believe that's correct. Right, you wouldn't want to shove three bigger ones closer. I mean, you could always make the space for them, I suppose, but okay, yeah. So I, I I wonder yeah what exactly what the arrangement is but if if it's if the idea is to increase payload capacity then yeah I guess having more vacuum optimized ones would be the way to go since it is the upper stage but then also like you said this is this is to get rid of the heat shield or this makes that possible right well I I, I guess not because you don't well I don't know I, I know what you mean right the, the three more engines is three more weight but so long as their thrust is as high as they are I'm sure that they are a net increase on like payload capacity one way or another. Yeah. And then I guess finally, the, the third major uh, overhaul for Starship version two is an increased propellant volume. 
And so uh, uh, Payload Space have reported on this, and they they reference changing the shape of fuel tanks. And I don't know if that's just being lazy about like calling an oxidizer and fuel tanks, just calling them both fuel tanks, right, instead of propellant tanks, or if they literally just mean that the fuel tanks will be their shape will be changed. I'm not sure which which they're referring to. Could be either. Um, there's kind of an ambiguity when people, I guess, say that. But one thing though that is unambiguous is that <laughs> uh, increasing the length of Starship by five to ten meters would increase your propellant volume <laughs> that you want to have. Yeah. And so as though it wasn't ridiculously tall enough <laughs> it's going to be even taller <laughs> right and so this uh i guess leads into the lunar starship so is this with lunar starship in mind because uh that's kind of what i've been hearing like specifically that's why the increase in the length yeah yeah that sounds like something that yeah so so exactly that jives with the these lunar starship renders that uh davis david willis had leaked uh they said that they're from SpaceX and that they had been holding on to them for, or Dave Wills had been holding on to them for uh, a while. Um, and there, I guess there isn't independent verification. So it's always possible that these renders are not official, but they do have the official moonscape that the first generation HLS um, render, or I guess the earliest renders of HLS had that same exact uh, moonscape behind it. And so that is suggestive that they are official and legit. But yeah, no. So and 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 if you just do a comparison, you would find that this new render is about 55 meters tall. So the original starship's about 50 meters, so that's adding 5 meters to it. So everything we just said about <laughs> increasing the uh the length of the vehicle seems to uh imply, like connect to this lunar starship. And so, yeah, I I don't know how much of V2 is just for, I think what it is, is I think there's a connection between, you know, uh, doing these upgrades for both the lunar starship as well as doing it for any non-lunar starships, non-HLS starships. Just because, I mean, if you're getting more engines and more propellant and more payload capacity, that could also be good for sending up, you know, 500,000 Starlinks or whatever uh, V2s that they want to do. And so um, that's why I think... I think those upgrades are for both the orbital starships and the lunar starship, if that makes sense. Yeah. What I had read, which seems to make sense, is that the larger fuel tanks for lunar starship being on the surface of the moon means that you can account for a little bit more boil off and still get the thing back off of the surface. So you just have like a little bit more, you know, like you have a little bit more of a margin to play with uh, with larger tanks since apparently some amount of fuel loss is going to happen. Um, you know, mm-hmm. just like sitting there on the surface. And so maybe that's why. Couldn't hurt to have a little bit more tank room, I suppose. <laughs> For sure. And maybe do you think this might decrease the number of in-orbit refuelings that are necessary, which kind of seemed like a sore point for using Starship as an yeah. HLS? Well, I suppose, right? So so if the tanker version is just as large, then yes. But if not, then no, right? Because you'd mm-hmm. still need to fill the whole thing up. I guess if it changes how much, how much do you still have, how much propellant do you still have once you reach orbit? then it could be less mm-hmm. trips. But if you have to burn that much more, I, I guess it would just be, a, in general, just with the rocket equation, it'd be a logarithmic improvement. And so maybe important, but not going from, what, a dozen refuelings to six. Mm-hmm. It might not be that good of a change. I can't remember what... Yeah, I can't remember. I mean, right, haven't different people said different numbers for how many 
on-orbit refuelings it would take? Yeah, famous, like infamously, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. So so when I say 12, that's plus or minus 12. Um, so. <laughs> 12 plus or minus 12, okay. Yeah, I wanna... so anywhere from 0 to 24. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But uh, these, the, this is this is this is fun. I mean, this I, I love kind of doing this stuff with you guys, just looking at renders. And um, so I guess just just real quick, uh, this is something you listening at home would want to check out yourselves. But uh, to, to to just run down uh, what the differences look like, because uh, the, it's a pair of renders. One of it shows uh, Starship uh, in low Earth orbit, or you know at least on its way to the moon, um, and then the other one shows uh, it on the lunar surface. And uh, so already kind of comparing that uh, lunar surface one with the previous lunar surface one, it looks like it's got the extra five meters in height. Um, the engine section is painted black. That's the difference. It was all white before. Um, the rest of the vehicle looks white. The four landing legs are no longer in uh, fairings, but just kind of pull up into the, like along the body of the vehicle, which is interesting. Uh, how that would work on ascent uh, or be okay. There are five large solar arrays, which uh, in this orbital render, uh, they're kind of all arrayed out, you know, making kind of a, a radially out, you know, five petals, like a you know pentagon kind of shape. Um, whereas when they're on the lunar surface, they're kind of tucked in and just, you know, lying along the body of the rocket, which makes sense since if lunar starships can be landing at the south pull of the moon, then the sun's going to be low on the horizon. And so that's kind of how you would want to have your solar panels arranged, you know, vertically relative to the lunar surface. They're also so long, I don't know if if they would be able to hold themselves up under their own weight. Oh, yeah, there'd be some serious torque. If that's the case, they also would likely either have to do minimum thrust burns, probably with the RCS, or they would have to cant or fully stow them before they did any burns. And I, I don't know. I don't know what the case is, but just some considerations that, that might be coming in there. Good point. Um, there's six communication antennas that you can see. Uh, the docking hatch seems to be moved from the nose at the top of the vehicle. Um, now that has uh, what looks like an ogive shape, uh, favorite word of the podcast. Um, <laughs> it, it looks like it's a, there's no, uh, it's not truncated at the end. And so it's not clear exactly where this new lunar hatch could be. It might be on one of the panels uh, off to the side of the rocket because it does look like there's a panel that kind of comes out and that's where the uh, elevator would kind of descend from because that's always the big thing is, I mean, I guess now that elevator has another five meters, it's got to <laughs> right. clear because it's a very tall, tall rocket, very uh, high f fineness. And uh, yeah, there's some small thrusters beneath the crew cabin and um, we still... Uh, uh, America Space had a lot of good reporting on this uh, and you know speculations, including uh, what is exactly going to be the seat arrangement and uh, where the people would be uh, on here. And so, yeah, so that's kind of just the rundown real quick. But what do you think about the uh, the renders themselves? Anything kind of jump out at you? It just looks incrementally different. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's art. I don't expect it to be super uh high fidelity compared to the real thing mm. you know whenever whenever that happens it just see, see, seems like art yeah. to me i don't know the look 
of it looks good. Um, the apparently the uh, the engines being painted black, right? That's um, in order to keep them warm, in order to absorb as much radiation as possible. But the rest of it's kept white uh, in order to reflect that heat, keep the rest of the body cool. Oh, you mean you mean the engine skirt painted black, not the engines, right? The, the engine. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. 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 So it's, I mean that's like a more practical choice, and so maybe that'll. That is what this will look more like. Because if you look at the first render, I mean, it, it looks very cool. But I think we all knew that probably wasn't what it was going to look like. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, but this one is changes. probably, yeah, I mean, it might not be exact, but it's probably closer to what we can really expect to see. Uh, so I think that's, you know, good, at least to you know, we get some idea. Um, and yeah, in the legs that just kind of fold up alongside the body, I don't suspect that would be a huge problem. There are, you know, those aerodynamic lows during ascent, but I mean, I don't know. I don't think it'll be super bad. Yeah. They're, they're not the lumpiest thing in the world, especially when you think about the canards and fins on something that can come back through the atmosphere. It's just like, yeah. I mean, I I guess they've gotten rid of the canards now, right? Yeah. But I mean, still like, yeah, it doesn't seem like the worst thing in the world. And, you know, you've got the big boxes that the solar panels fold out of. It's like, yeah, I don't, I agree. I don't think it's a big deal. More about saving weight than saving drag. And as important as, you know, legs are, and I'm sure the the actual like actuating mechanism is very complicated, but like the legs themselves are pretty, you know, they're pretty blunt types of objects where, you know, getting some heat on them, so long as they structurally survive, that's, I'm sure, good enough for them being used as landing legs once you get to the moon. Yeah. And how many, and how many people would, would ride HLS to the surface? Because they talk about two people, you know, there, but like that, that seems like a lot of rocket for two people to, <laughs> to command, you know? I mean, I'm sure you could do it, but like, I, it just, it just seems peculiar to me to think about this mini skyscraper landing on the moon and like, you know, two little people are, are the only ones that are taking advantage of it to get to the lunar surface. That is a lot of, it's a lot uh, of rocket for, for just yeah. two, two people. Yeah. <laughs> well, it'll be roomy. Literally like the spaceships in the movies. <laughs> yeah. Star, Starship will be big, but I mean, like I can't imagine having four people in Orion for the trip out to the moon. It's probably going to suck to have two people who don't even get to get oh. out of the spacecraft for very I mean, they're probably going to go wander around Starship while they're transferring over. But like, yeah, <laughs> it kind of sucked to find yourself in orbit around the moon in, you know, a, a reasonably small capsule with another person and feeling relief because, you know, two people have gone and you're like, oh, OK, I got a little more room. And that, you know, that relief is still like you're in Orion, <laughs> you know, you're not in, you're not, you don't have any extra space in uh, uh gateway. Cause that's right. Cause gateway is probably not going to be up and running for Artemis three. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's out of the critical path as they say. Yeah, so, so who knows what's going to happen with that. But I just think about that. Yeah. Like being, you know. Get, uh, during the Apollo missions, having to stay in the uh, the command module, it's like, okay, well, you're in low lunar orbit, so you get some wonderful views all the time. And I'm sure, you know, the views of the moon will be great with Artemis, but the fact that it's in an, uh, an NRHO means you're going to spend more time away from the moon and you won't get the kind of pretty close-up views to look out the window all the time. So Yeah, but I think it'd be pretty cool to see the variation as you're flying mm-hmm. up away and then falling down towards the moon and screaming across the, <laughs> what, I guess the North Pole. 
I, I think that would be pretty cool. Yeah, that, it is true. Like at least with telescopes, you know, looking at you know zoomed in on the moon is wonderful. But then mm-hmm. there's also something to be said for having the whole moon in your field of view and how wonderful that looks through a telescope. And a totally different moon too, because you know, in in an NRHO, you're seeing it from below most of the time, which mm. is just wild. And like as you're as you're coming up across the sides of it, it it's got to be pretty fun to try and spot familiar features when mm. you're, you know, much closer to it. And then also, I guess, getting to see the far side. Like, I, I, th- I think it would be a pretty cool way to experience the moon. But I, I agree, like, still probably a little, <laughs> a little frustrating. Okay, so we got three short and sweets this week. And Ben, what is the first? First up, JAXA cyber attacked. Japanese police recently informed JAXA that their internal systems had been hacked over the summer. While the hackers didn't appear to access any info related to launch or satellite operations, the server that was breached consisted of employees' personal information. JAXA shut down part of their intranet as they continue to analyze the cyber attack, which is the third successful one targeting the agency since 2012. Next up, US watchdog agency finds Artemis 3 in 2025 unlikely. The Government Accountability Office, or GAO, which audits and evaluates government spending, has issued its latest report on the Artemis program, finding that while progress has been made, multiple challenges still exist, developing the Human Landing System, or HLS, and the program spacesuits. The report points out that the complete HLS schedule, from project start to launch, is only 79 months, which is over a year shorter than NASA's average and unrealistic, and that while Axiom is leveraging previous work on spacesuit design, challenges still remain for them. As a result, the GAO concluded that a 2025 date for the lunar landing Artemis 3 mission is unlikely. Then next up, gyroscope glitch halts Hubble operations. The Hubble Space Telescope automatically entered safe mode recently after receiving faulty readings from one of its three remaining active gyroscopes. While the observatory and its instruments are in good health, science operations are currently suspended. This latest glitch follows a similar one that happened just days earlier, which mission managers were able to resolve only briefly before the latest issue. The team is now exploring solutions and if necessary, Hubble can be reconfigured to operate with only one gyro, although that reduces pointing efficiency. But it's still hanging on, so because it's Hubble. Yeah, I gotta go send uh, Starship V2 up there to service it. So let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. Uh, we have a bunch of winners. Uh, the ones who got the correct rating um, are Hydrak and Uncle Willie. And then the ones who also get bonus points are Leon Running Man, The Greek, Cy Kyle, Ryan R, and Chris, or Chris S. So congratulations. Uh, I guess that was a pretty easy clue. Uh, the event was the 7th of December 1966, and it was the launch of ATS-1, which was the first experimental geostationary satellite. A lot of the things that this satellite accomplished, I think we've talked about before with other satellites, but you know, there's always the little caveats as to what makes this one the first like in its field. And I think it's that this is the first experimental geostationary satellite that did a lot of stuff from geostationary orbit. So yeah, uh, the ATS stands for Applications Technology Satellite. And so really, this is a satellite that really was launched in order to find out what could be done on a satellite in geostationary orbit as opposed to some other orbit. Um, It's not the first geostationary satellite, and it's probably not the first satellite to test a lot of these technologies, but it is the first one to test these technologies in geostationary orbit. Uh, So hopefully that makes that clear. Yes, so some of the technologies, um, and there really was a lot. There was like 14 different experiments on board. I might list them. I didn't put them in the notes, but I can just rattle them off. There's like a bunch of them. I suppose the most visibly beneficial were the ability to make accurate weather forecasts because it could just take images of the entire earth or at least you know one whole hemisphere it also facilitated radio and tv transmission um so kind of like serving as a relay because up until 
this satellite. I think there were maybe a couple of others, maybe, but you know, there was no real satellite communication at that time, certainly not from GEO. Um, so uh, it was launched from Cape Canaveral aboard an Atlas, the SLV-3 with the Agena-D stage. So this is, I mean, I think, didn't you just talk about this last week, Dennis, or someone did? Uh, we're always talking about Atlas with the stage and a half. Um, and uh, this particular, yeah. oh, it's Ben, okay. Um, this particular variant was used, I mean, specifically this one, the SLV-3 was used, I think, just to launch the ATS satellite constellation because this is just the first of five of them. Uh, so it was really just used for that. But um, yeah, it was placed into GEO uh, somewhere above Ecuador at uh, 35,782 kilometers. That was the altitude at an inclination of 3.6 degrees. So not necessarily completely stationary, but you know near enough. It had a period of 1,435.5 minutes, which is slightly longer than a day, so it kind of gradually drifted westward over the course of several years. The construction, um, it was built by Hughes, uh, and it had an HS-306 bus, and uh, once again, this bus is I think just for the ATS satellites. I don't think there were any other that you know use this particular one. It's basically a giant barrel. That's kind of what it looks like, um, with several antenna from the top and the bottom. It had a mass of 340 kilograms and is uh, about 1.4 by 1.4 meters. So a diameter of 1.4 meters and then a height of about 1.4 meters. Um, and it was spin stabilized at 97 RPM, which I, I mean, is that not, is that fast or am I just naive for thinking so? Because I thought most satellites were spin stabilized at a slower rate than that. That to me seemed kind of fast. That's pretty quick. That's like about one and a half times per second. Yeah. So you think about one Mississippi and then it had done a whole spin and that thing's, you know, it's fairly yeah. wide. So that's pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. For that size. I mean, it was like really rolling there because <laughs> um, there's a cool video you can watch on YouTube uh, that covers this. And it was something like a 1960s version of like this week in space kind of a thing. And uh, they show a little animation of it spinning and, and I see it and I'm like, well, it, it's not actually spinning that fast. You know, that's just a little animation, but no, it's spinning that fast. It's like 97 RPM. Wow. Yeah. And the spin axis is aligned with the earth's axis, which I, I'm not sure if there's a particular or if there's a reason for that that has to do with taking imagery of the Earth. Um, but nonetheless, that is uh, how it was stabilized, probably for some of the other experiments that were on board. Uh, and it's covered in solar panels. It did have some batteries as well, but the whole thing, so if you just think of a large cylindrical shape that's just covered in solar panels, uh, that is essentially what it looks like, uh, not a whole lot in the way of features. Yeah, so I guess I guess if its long axis is aligned with the Earth's rotation axis and it's in a geostationary orbit, then I guess that means mm -hmm. that the body of the spacecraft sweeps over the Earth and then the sky and then comes back around to sweep over the Earth again. I don't see why the axis would the axes would need to both point in the same direction necessarily. I mean, it could be off by like you know like even ninety degrees and still make that sweep of the Earth. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, no, if it was off, I, oh, I see. I like yeah, tipped on its side, so like not like with the I, north yeah, 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 axis yeah. of the, or you know yeah, like you don't want an axis like pointing at the Earth. No, but it doesn't have to be aligned. And from what I understand, it, it actually like is aligned with the Earth's axis. Well, I mean. You do it one way or do it the other way. You can't do it both simultaneous, so <laughs> you pick one. I don't right, know. Right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like one cool thing that I did want to mention, because uh, again, there's so many experiments, but can't cover them all. It did use FDMA, which is Frequency Division Multiple Axis. 
and it used that for transmission back to ground stations. So um, I don't know if we've talked about this, you know, before. It's a fairly common means of transmitting information. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but I had to look it up because uh, these types of things get really confusing quickly. So basically, it uses separate non-overlapping frequency subchannels that are each used to transmit to ground stations. So basically, you have a range of frequencies that this thing can, you know, like transmit, and then they are like sectioned off with a little bit of a gap between each frequency range, um, and that's just so that there's no confusion. Uh, those gaps are like. I guess called gap frequencies or something. I don't remember what they're called. You can essentially modulate or like attenuate that frequency. um, And then that is the means by which you transmit the information. Um, It's basically, it's not the same thing as some other things like there's the frequency multiplexing and there's a couple there's a a whole bunch of other ones Mm. but um this specifically is frequency division multiple axis so basically this is what made it the switchboard in the sky which is one term that was used and um by doing this it could handle 602 way or 1200 one-way calls between ground stations which is pretty phenomenal um or it could just do one color tv signal so you could just you know do a television broadcast or a whole bunch of phone calls <laughs> so F- fdma is basically the same concept as like fm radio right where like for fm you've got this big band that's dedicated to fm and to move between different streams of of audio data you move through different frequencies and then each yeah each channel is a it's a carrier signal that's then modulated in frequency to change, you know, to, to specify different yeah. bits or, you know, different audio frequencies. But when you're using FM, like in your, say, like in your car and you're switching through the dial, you're picking up different stations that are transmitting at different frequencies, right? Mm-hmm. So this is just transmitting one signal and it's, at least I believe, and it's modulating that frequency within a certain range. That That would be more like a time divided access scheme where you're talking to different people at different time, which is what happens when you have a single Wi-Fi network, right? It's all the same channel. And then, diff- you know, the router is sending packets to different users and listening to packets from different users. It's all in the same channel and they're just taking turns. But a frequency divided access scheme is where you can have people talking at the same time, but because they're on different different frequencies, you can split up. You can hear each one simultaneously because you're, you know, it's it's almost like putting a filter in front of your camera and only looking at red light and then blue light and then green light. And if people were using flashlights, it were those different colors. But I think I think what you're saying about it being a single channel i think you're i think what you're talking about is like it's a single transponder like a single antenna that's doing it Mm -hmm. and um a single antenna can still spit out multiple channels at once because they're on they they are different frequencies but point taken like yeah it's it's not fm because it's all one station (laughs) rather than physically separated stations, right? I'll take that explanation. <laughs> I, th- I think you have a better understanding of it than I do. Yeah, because I had never uh, read up on this before. Uh, it's interesting, though. Yeah, r- radio radio communications are like black magic. <laughs> mm-hmm. And no, no matter how much of a description you give, you're never really actually explaining what it is because like there's always one extra layer that you could go into. And so like I 
I definitely don't want to sound like I really understand this stuff. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm, I'm taking a crack at it because I, I think I understand enough to talk on this level. But So yeah, so a little bit less complex than yeah, this uh, frequency division multiple access is just taking images of the Earth. <laughs> but it was a, a little bit tricky. So yeah, like I said, the spacecraft is actually rotating at 97 RPMs pretty fast. So this was done with something called the Spin Scan Cloud Cover Camera. The images were taken in strips, then they were pieced together. So basically, during the Earth-facing part of the rotation, it scans a small strip of the Earth, takes that image, and then pieces it together with the next one that it takes on the next rotation. And then you can get a full image in under 30 minutes or around like 20 minutes from what I was able to find. So in about 20 minutes, you can get a full image of one whole hemisphere of the Earth. And this was the first time that this was ever done. So is it always taking the same slice? Well, because the, the photos come out round, right? It's not like the photos are rectangular. So it's not like it's waiting for the Earth to pass. Oh, and it's geocentric or geostationary. So it does have to sweep its like the camera plane back and forth. Basically, with each rotation, the camera's angle has to change by that much more. So yeah, it's not a fixed camera. Uh, the camera itself changes its angle with each pass. And by that, I mean like with each rotation, not like an actual pass because it's not going anywhere. Like you said, it's geostationary. Yeah. So do you know like what the... Dennis, you probably know this. What the apparent diameter of Earth is from geostationary orbit? Damn like it, I wrote that... Sorry, I don't want to step on you. <laughs> but but either way, the, this camera had to swing back and forth plus or minus 15 degrees-ish. I, I wonder if that was enough to to move the axis, the spin axis of the satellite at all. Maybe that's why the thing rotated so darn fast. So, I mean, it's got to it's gotta be a mirror, right? Like, they can't be moving the whole camera. It's got to be just a small mirror that kind of flicks back and forth. I don't know why this is so fascinating to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, good questions on the camera. But yeah, a full scan in under 30 minutes. So that's like the big revolutionary thing. And this particular camera, I think only took black and white images. Um, the following ATS, I, or actually I think it was ATS-3, was able to do it in color. Uh, so another uh, huge milestone there. But yeah, being able to observe you know, the entirety of the Earth's surface to see these weather patterns develop. I mean, it's something that we take for granted now, but you know, up until then, they didn't have that. One other cool feature of the satellite is that this actually facilitated the ability for aircraft to maintain communications with you know the outside world while over remote parts of the world. So basically, if you're over the Pacific Ocean somewhere, there was a time, you know, like back in the 60s when you just were out of range of anyone, uh, which is kind of crazy to think. You just didn't communicate with, I mean, you were just, I guess, in communication blackout. Mm. And then eventually, once you got, I guess, within line of sight of some other ground station somewhere, you could then communicate. But uh, uh, yeah, and I think the first transmission was actually sent from Goddard Space Flight Center to Mojave, and that was not done with the satellite, but then from there it was uh, relayed to a United Flight 2621, which was located just southwest of San Francisco. So I don't think that it was necessarily out of range of communication. This was just an experiment just to see if it you know, could be done. And anyway, so yeah, I guess this brings us to the uh, clue, which was um, it made our world possible, um, which is a television program that was called Our World. Um, it ran for, I think, a couple years, but uh, the first transmission was on the 25th of June, 1966. 
1987. That's not the event, because like I said, it was the launch of the satellite, but you know, um, the satellite did make our world possible, the show. Um, and this is really interesting. This is actually, I've never heard of this show before. I think that the making of it and everything that led that kind of like led up to it should be made into a movie. I think it's that interesting. I had no idea about it, um, but I'm just going to cover it briefly. It uh, premiered in 1967 to, well, they don't have exact numbers, but to an estimated audience of 400 to 700 million people. That's a lot. I think that's more than the Super Bowl, um, maybe ever. I'm not sure. I think mm. a lot of people worldwide watch it these days, so maybe we get numbers like that for the Super Bowl, but that's a lot of people. I mean, you know, 400 million at the low end is just unbelievable. It was transmitted live to 24 countries, and the ATS-1 satellite was one of the satellites that made that possible. Uh, there were three others, which were the Intelsats 1, 2, and 3, which were named Early Bird, Lonnie Bird, and Canary Bird, respectively. These four satellites uh, were able to um, make this live transmission happen. And the whole thing was live. This was kind of like watching Saturday Night Live, except that it was broadcast across the whole world, which nowadays, I guess, isn't a big deal. But back then, it absolutely was. Yeah. Um, they had like live acts. They were going to, you know, hospitals in Tokyo and like watching kids be born. It was just crazy. Like they were just showing everything happening across the whole world. Um, and and one rule, which I just wanted to note, was that no politicians were allowed on camera. So, <laughs> but they did cover a meeting between Lyndon Johnson and the Soviet premier at the time, but they couldn't show them on camera because there were no politicians allowed on camera. So they were just kind of like, you know, like covering the fact that that was happening. And there were five Eastern Bloc countries that were going to participate in the broadcast, but they actually pulled out due to the Six Days War, which I believe was a war between Israel and uh, the Arab League or something like that. I don't remember. Yeah. So uh, 24 countries total, there were 14, they were actually participating countries, which means that they were doing the broadcast. And then there were 10 others, which were actually just receiving the broadcast. So after that, the ATS-1 satellite continued to operate for 10 more years, or maybe like 11 more years up until 1978. But like I said, at the beginning, it was gradually drifting westward. So it actually drifted to 151 degrees latitude, which was just east of Christmas Island. Um, and at that point, it was deactivated uh, in 1978. But it had a pretty long life uh, and did lots of uh, cool stuff and yeah brought us the first you know saturday night live type of uh, <laughs> transmission to the whole planet back in 1967 yeah. that's pretty neat but uh yeah that's uh the ats1 and uh, this week in space Life history so when they retired it did they move it up to the junkyard orbit or is it still in geo at 151 degrees no apparently it uh, stopped responding to commands and so it just entered a useless orbit is the term that i see here Cool. All right. Well, thank you, David, for that twisif. So, Ben, next week is the 12th to the 18th of December. Do you have a clue for us? Yes, I do. Uh, next week in 2012, the clue is digging up debris. And I'm going to say right now, I'm not going to be here next week. And uh, I'm currently getting sick. Uh, ho hopefully not. Hopefully I'm not actually getting sick, but I suspect I'm getting sick. And so I may not be able to pre-record this before, uh, I take off. Uh, so one of you two <laughs> may be covering this <laughs> and having to deal with, uh, the success or failure of this clue. And say everybody, uh, keep your fingers crossed that Ben, uh, you know, doesn't succumb to the sickness, but in any event, if you have a guess as to what this clue is referencing, email us at info at theorbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a tweet on Mastodon using the hashtag thisweeksf or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash discord for an invite to our discord server and then you can type slash twsf to hand your guests directly to Tombot. 
And good luck, everybody. Good luck. Let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. We got five possible launches. Some may launch, some may not, but that's always the case. Uh, what's the first possible launch been? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this is uh, Landspace's Juche 2 launch. And apparently this is their first like customer on board. Um, they're calling it Flight 3. Uh, launch library is... Um, and we don't know what's on board yet. So for folks uh, in the Americas, uh, they're saying NET, no, no earlier than the 7th of December it is the, the best source that I see. Uh, Launch Library has it listed as Wednesday, September 6th at 2330 hours UTC. Uh, but I think it could be uh, any time uh, on the 6th or the 7th. And uh, that's, again, a, a no earlier then. So we'll we'll see if they manage to get out on their earliest date. That'd be pretty cool. And then next up on Thursday, December 7th, we have a Falcon 9 Block 5 that will be taking Starlink Group 633 to orbit. I actually saw Starlink train for the first time last week. It was pretty incredible. All these years that they've been setting them up and I never happened to like catch one. But yeah, it's just ridiculous looking so but in any event yeah so uh again that's uh thursday december 7th with a window from 0400 to 0800 utc and uh this falcon 9 will be flying out of the cape at slick 40 and then after that on december 8th we have the launch of uh another starlink group this is starlink group 78 on a falcon 9 block 5 uh this one's launching from vandenberg space force base from slick 4e so launching sometime on the 8th uh, is the time we have we don't actually have an exact liftoff time but yeah launching from vandenberg so uh, yeah, you can check that one out. That'll be kind of cool to see if you're on the West Coast. Uh, after that is Falcon Heavy flying OTV-7. So this is X-37B's seventh flight. Um, this is likely to be Vehicle 1 uh, because Vehicle 2 flew most recently. Um, and if their history is any predictor, uh, OTV-7 is going to be on orbit for a thousand days or more. We'll, we'll see how long they stay up. And uh, Delta V in the chat points out something that's really fantastic. Uh, SpaceX and NASA both uh, agree that after uh, the two boosters from this launch are recovered, those two boosters are going to go on uh, to fly their final flights, launching Europa Clipper, uh, hopefully next October. They're, you know, budget issues right now but hopefully uh that will be the case and and really cool to watch these guys knowing what they're going to be doing next that doesn't happen too terribly often so uh otv7 is going to be launching on sunday december 10th and that's as much as we know because that's as much as uh spaceforce.mil is willing to tell us so hopefully we get a little more detail because this is going to be a really cool uh launch to watch yeah and then rounding us out something much much smaller than a falcon heavy an electron and so uh this one has gotten bumped evidently and it is the intensely named the moon god awakens mission which will be taking a uh, synthetic aperture radar satellite uh from iqps uh, to low Earth orbit, and it has a window on December 13th from 0400 to 0600, and it will be flying out of the uh, Mahia Peninsula in New Zealand from Rocket Lab Launch Complex 1B. All right, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, and that means it's time to do about the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Mike, Mr. Cesium, Leon Running Man, Astro, Chris S., the Greek Colin, Moritz, Delta V, 
Vax Hedrum and Cy Kyle for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show, please tell a friend or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen. You can also visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links. Get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash about. Or you can skip all of that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you.